All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 46 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Bomani, and today I got my boy Blue Buds back on set as we're here to talk about the various things that happen at the NFL Scouting Combine as we prepare for the NFL Draft that'll be in the month. But before we dive in, Blue, I, I seen you, um, you were at the HBCU Legacy Bowl. You've been a part of some Combine-esque activities with the um, HBCU Combine. How have you enjoyed that process so far, and how has it helped you prepare to kind of um, analyze everything that's going on elsewhere at the NFL Scouting Combine to kind of get you ready to analyze the effects of the draft that's coming up. Yeah, man. Um, you know, if you would have told me when I started my show that I'd be at the Combine and the Legacy Bowl and and doing what I was doing, I wouldn't believe you mess up. First off, I like I just want to say, man, how thankful and grateful I am to even be in the position to to go and do things like that. But, um, you know, in terms of how it prepares me to move forward and evaluate prospects, it was a really great opportunity, not just to talk to the scouts personally and pick their minds and, and see what they were seeing and try to see, you know, cause I feel like as announced as, as analysts, we get really attached to players because we do the game preview. So we get attached to a Marquis Bell. We get attached to a James Houston, a Jacoby Durant, you know, even at the FCS level and Eric Berry, Cole Kelly. And so it, it, it does cloud analyst judgment, you know, their judgments because you see some of the SWAC channels, they, they always are like, Oh, why is it this guy going in the first, second round? And it's like, you know, you're kind of looking at it through biased glasses. So to look at look at everything from a scout's perspective, see what they're looking at, because, you know, you might be watching a three cone drill and be looking in the wrong place. You're not looking at the footwork. You're not you're, you're not looking at how he turns his hip bend, things like that. And then also just overhear some of the conversations of the scouts. How do scouts talk to each other? What are they bounce? What ideas are they bouncing off of each other? Everything like that was a great opportunity to really see how I was evaluating prospects and what I was looking at and valuing and compare it to what a NFL scout was looking at. And I think, you know, being there and networking and just seeing kind of how everything works overall is going to make me a better, a, a better evaluator of talent because I'm going to know a little bit better where to look and what the scouts are looking for. And that way, when I break down other scouts' reports on these players, I can explain it in a way that my listeners who weren't in this in that same situation now can understand. Not only was it a first time for you, it was the first time like ever that they had an HBCU as combine and a legacy bowl all-star game for HBCU talents to showcase to NFL scouts. They have what it takes to get to the next level. How do you feel like those participants took advantage of a first-time opportunity, and what do you feel like those requisite uh, events can build upon in the future to make it a more notoriety or a more um, well-canvassed event that everybody can see and analyze moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like there was a lot of examples of people who really used it and and turned up in, in the right spots. You look at Akil Glass at the Legacy Bowl. Every practice was talking to different scouts, was talking to NFL Network after practice. Ezra Gray had a great showing all week at practice and at the combine, even when he was hurt. You look at Jermaine Martin, you know. I think the best example of how it helps are players who might not be in schemes that I guess, suit their talent very well, like a Marquise McClain. Came from Auburn, not a pass-heavy system, a lot of screens and and underneath stuff, or it's going to be a deep shot. There was no intermediate route running. And then he goes to Southern. They never throw the ball. And so for him to be able to get into the combine, put on the athletic domination that he did in terms of the broad jump, the three-cone drill, the 40, his pass-catching ability, his route running at the Legacy Bowl – 
Marquise McLean went from a guy who wasn't even a swack All-American, probably nobody even really paid attention to what he was doing at Southern, now to being a potential draft pick because of his athletic ability that just wasn't utilized at the college level. And so I think that's the best example of, you know, players utilized in the moment. And then you even look at some of the D2 players that showed out from uh, Bowie State and, and some other places like that. There were a lot of people. Deshaun Dixon for Norfolk State had an outstanding legacy ball. I mean, that kid was changing the game. I mean, scouts were asking, like, how that kid was even on the field. Like, they were like, that kid should be playing at the next level. And so I think in terms of getting more people there, it's up to us as the media. It's up to more of the HBCU SWAC media getting down there and getting to these events because at the HBCU Combine, there there was, you know, it was the NFL Network. It was some local radio people. And then it was, M, M, I, I believe, I, I might be messing up their uh, acronym right now, so I apologize, but it's MVMT Sports. And they were down there getting a lot of film. I was at the Combine. Me, Cut Day, and them were at the HBCU Legacy Bowl. But where was everybody else? Where was the rest of the media coverage shining the light on the players, shining the light on the event? Where was the promotion? And so I think those are the next steps is, you know, we're out of excuses now. This is what everyone was asking for. Now that they're now that it's here, where's the attendance and where's the media coverage? And there's no excuse if you're in HBCU, FCS media that you shouldn't be at these events. All fabulous points indeed. I, I think the Requisite events have a chance to build upon, but the next step, obviously, is different aspects of media coming into it and prioritizing those events as much as they prioritize the shrine practice, as much as they prioritize the senior bowl, because they're all sister partners, requisite to say, that help align players to get into the league, because um, if you have talent, people will find you. And for a guy like a Marquise McLean, it was important for him to shine at the combine and at the legacy bowl because it reminded everybody, despite the system he played in, he has NFL caliber talent that can translate to the pro level in a more West Coast oriented passing game. So all of those aspects are very, very important. Um, as we head into the topics, uh, three FCS standpoints at the NFL Combine. Blue, you're an FCS nut. You've always been on the FCS uh, news cycle throughout the season. So I know this this is a topic for sure for you. Um, we're going to go player by player. So I'm going to let you say the first player in your eyes that stood out from the FCS realm at the NFL Scotty Combine. I assume as we go back and forth, we might have the same guys because there was a few guys that were kept popping off to a lot of high key scouts at my job and in other places that I've seen at YouTube. So let's go with number one for you. Zion McCollum. I don't even think there's an argument for number one. I mean, it, it like any list that doesn't start with Zion McCollum's name, I gotta, I gotta look at it side eyed because that, I mean, he comes out of Sam Houston, a national champion and all American comes in measures in six two one ninety nine, has the third best 40 out of all DBs at a four, three, three, the number two vertical at a 39 and a half, the number one broad jump at an 11, at like 11, feet and then had the number one three cone drill and 20 yard shuttle out of all positions at the combine so the number one player overall at two different things and you know he's going to be a project player listen no one was coming into the week saying Zion McCollum was going to be a first round pick or, or the best cornerback in, in in the NFL draft but he's got the tools to build upon what he already has athletically he might be one of the most athletic DBs in this upcoming NFL draft. You know he can play for a winning team. He played at Sam Houston. That was, the, I mean, he was part of the one of the more dominant defenses in the FCS. And so Zion McCollum probably went from 
an undrafted free agent to a late sixth, seventh round pick to possibly a day two pick with his combine performance. So for me, Zion McCollum had to be the standout. And I think you can make an argument, man. He might have been the biggest standout regardless if you're talking FBS, FCS, D2, it doesn't matter. Zion McCollum has to be talked about. Yeah, McCollum was phenomenal. Um, He had the third best, his 40 time out of all the corners. For me, uh, it's Christian Watson. That's my number one. And a lot of guys were just enthralled by him. Obviously, he comes from that pipeline in North Dakota State. All they do is produce NFL talent quarterbacks. Now, receivers next up on the list. But he was phenomenal in the sense of he had the fast 40, 4, 3, 6. He had the vert jump at 38.5, the broad jump at 13 and 13, 6. I mean, he had all those intangibles, all of those tools. And I saw his take leading up into the combine. And what pops off is at that size, he has the speed to stretch the field. At that size, he has the ability to um, catch the football and make records of yards after the catch. And so those type of receivers, those type of size guys that have the size-speed combination, those are the norm now at the NFL level, a guy that can be able to be a possession receiver but also have the speed to take the top off the defense. Once he ran that 4-3-6, which is basically a sub-4-4, he rose up a lot of people's list to where now I think he's a lot to be a top-50 pick. Now, my issues with him weakness-wise, when I looked at him on film, drops a lot of balls. I, that I'm comfortable seeing with that. a guy at that size, a guy with that physique, a guy with those hands, guys with those measurables, you would think would be more of a solid contested catcher compared to the likes of like a Drake London, who also has a size that might not have the speed of as a Watson, but he has the possession catchability to make plays over smaller DBs. But off rip, he's a guy that can come in and be your field stretcher. And when you look at a guy at 6'4", 208, that doesn't normally come to your mind as he's going to be the vertical threat, but he can be that. And he thrived really in a North Dakota State system you know this, they don't really throw the football a ton. They're a run-first team. And so a lot of times when they went deep, they went to him. He was their shot play guy. And he took advantage of those limited opportunities and thrived. So he's my one at that aspect. Um, Who's your second guy in the FCS? It, it was Christian Watson. Um, You know, I did a film breakdown on him on my channel this week, actually, um, and kind of broke down his film, talked about what he accomplished. I mean, this is a kid who at 6'4", 208, you you usually want your kick and punt returners to be small guys. This guy was a three-time first-team All-American kick returner at the FCS level. I mean, you talk about just pure athleticism. At 6'4", 208, you should not be running a 4'3". I'm sorry. That's that's ridiculous. And you mentioned his broad jump that led the entire combine. Nobody else in the combine had a longer broad jump than him. And, you know, I saw a lot of people being critical of Christian Watson on Twitter, on the NFL network, where they were like, the production is not there. And I'm like, well, that's because they ran the ball 57 times a game because their offensive line outweighed everybody by their offensive line average, like 315 pounds at the FCS level. That's not normal. And there's and you have four running backs, Tameric Williams, Kobe Johnson, Hunter Lipke, and I for, I'm blanking on the kid who got hurt this year. I, I believe his last name's uh, Boosie or Bussy. And they just aren't going to – they're not going to throw the football. And then also Cam Miller and Quincy, Quincy Patterson, who are the quarterbacks, are run-first quarterbacks. They're not going to sit back – the, they're not a Trey Lance or Carson Wentz that is going to be a throw first but have the athleticism to move. Um, but Christian Watson, man, uh, you, you mentioned the speed. His speed's going to be utilized because I think even when you look at the film, if the DB gets his hips turned the wrong way, it's over. Because he's Christian Watson's too athletic. He's going to flip you back inside, and you're not going to be able to turn fast enough, and he's going to be 10 yards behind you, and it's not even going to be close. And also his ability to block two downfield is something that I think NFL teams are going to fall in love with. There's a play I broke down on my channel where he comes from the other side of the field 
cuts off a defender and just throws his body on the line for the running back to break off a touchdown. That's going to be big. And you mentioned his drops. I agree. That's one of my biggest criticisms. And also just sometimes I feel like he lacks motivation. If he knows he's not going to get the ball, he's going to half half run his route and he's going to round it off. And if the ball ends up coming to him, a good DB is going to pick that off or be able to make a play on it. And with his drops, I feel like he goes for the highlight play too much. If he just went up and went to catch the football, that's great. But he tries to make too much happen and make that wow sports center top 10 catch. But I think that's all fixable. Because that's why I agree with you. I think he's a top 50 pick and his versatility to play out of the backfield, play in the slot, be the jet sweep guy, be a special teams guy, be the X, be the be the Z. It doesn't matter. Christian Watson, man, I, I think really made some money in Indianapolis. Yeah, man, Watson has all the intangibles to be a future one. I think, like you said, sure hand starts there, uh, motivation being invested, that motor has to continue to run high. But off rip, coming into the league, that speed, you can game plan that into any system you have, and he can be an impact player day one. My second guy was the Kobe Durant. And obviously from South Carolina State, coming out of the MEAC, he was regarded as one of the premier MEAC corners. And he really translated that pretty well, I thought, at the East-West Shrine practice um, in the East-West Shrine game. And he balled out at the combine. He ran the second fastest 40 time out of all FCS corners. Um, after Zion McCollum, he was second. He ran that 4-3-8. And that's important because he's kind of a smaller guy at 5'10", 180. So to show that he has that makeup speed to match his fluidity to get in and out of breaks and make plays on the football is phenomenal. And the two, the two tapes, well, really the main tape that helped propel him into a lot of people's draft boards highly – was that Clemson take? He had two picks. It was one of his highest graded coverage games all year. But for me, that sold him celebration bowl against Jackson State. He was tasked with covering Malachi Whiteman, and he took him out of the game. Like, we all know Malachi Whiteman's a pretty raw talent. He's a deep threat. He has to kind of learn the ins and outs of the rest of the route tree. But from a vertical threat standpoint, he's got a height, size mismatch over Durant, and Durant took him away by just staying in his hip pocket flowing with him down the scenes multiple times because of that speed and that ball skill awareness. And so he's a guy, I think he played his way possibly into a third or fourth round berth. And the one thing that he has going is he's a product of South Carolina State, who has done a very good job of producing high-level pros. Most recently, Darius Leonard, who's become an all-pro ever since he stepped foot on the football field. So Durant is my two. Um, to round it off, who is your three out of the, out of, um, the top three guys you had that performed well in the FCS? And the, the third one, the third one was hard because there was so that like, FCS guys dominated this combine. But I gotta go with Troy Anderson, man. I think Troy Anderson made him a lot of money out of Montana State, a linebacker, six, three and a half, two forty-three, and ran a four-four-two. That I mean, that doesn't even sound right. I mean, the fact that he can move like he can is remarkable. Also had the fifth best uh broad jump at a 10-8 for all linebackers. And this is a guy who the, you know, we mentioned Christian Watson. The production might not be there. Well, the, the production is there for Troy Anderson, a multi-time All-American, has been an All-American at running back, quarterback, and linebacker. And, I mean, for a guy to have that type of versatility and be able to just switch positions is, is you know, seamlessly as Troy Anderson did. And the other thing I think you got, you know, it's a negative to a point. I think teams are going to be excited about is he's going to be you can mold him into the linebacker you want to be he's only played linebacker for two seasons and finished second in the Buck Buchanan award was the big sky defensive player of the year and so therefore he doesn't have the bad habits that you might get with an experienced linebacker a guy who's played linebacker his whole life is going to have a lot of bad habits you're going to have to break with Troy Anderson 
you just you get this superb athlete with with a with a great set of skills and then you get to add to that and he doesn't have a lot of bad habits you're going to have to break cuz he's only played it for 2 years so Troy Anderson when you look at the speed of what the NFL game is becoming with running backs being pretty much wide receivers, let's just be honest, the best running backs in the NFL outside of Derrick Henry because he is made in a lab somewhere. Every good running back is a receiving back. Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, Jonathan Taylor can catch. I mean, it, the list goes on. Dalvin Cook can catch. It goes on and on. You're going to need a fast physical linebacker who can cover out of the out of the backfield and that is Troy Anderson and on top of that had 147 tackles this year so and and this is going to sound crazy and I know some people are going to push back on this he reminds me so much of Luke Keekley from the Carolina Panthers who is a generational talent at the linebacker spot and that's a lot to live up to but in terms of his athleticism his his leadership his tackling in the open field and his coverage ability Troy Anderson has one of the highest untapped ceilings in the NFL draft. I agree. And he's actually my third. So we were kind of two or three, <laughs> two out of three in this situation. But when I put on the tape of Troy Anderson, I mean, let's start with his combine numbers. He ran the, had the fastest 40 time at the combine four, four, two. That is Madden S type numbers right there. I asked the vertical jump of 36 and the broad jump of a 10, eight Like you said, quarterback, running back, linebacker, he played all of those positions. So off rip learning about his backstory and whatnot, I'm like, dude, he reminds me a lot of Shaq Thompson when he was at Washington, played all of those positions, and that translated very well as athleticism. But I think the thing that shines bright about him is uh, he's just – he's a versatile guy. Um, he can make all, all the plays. He's athletic. His pursuit's phenomenal. You said Luke Keekley, and I, I'm not really appalled by that because the thing that stood out on the film, his read and react skills. He was able to diagnose the play and attack it. Now, his tackling ability kind of has to prove a little bit better, but when he reads, sees it, sniffs it, and goes, he's second to none. And from a PFF standpoint, I mean, the grades are phenomenal. His defensive grade was 86.3. His run defense grade was 80.5. His coverage grade was 86.4. He was the leader of a top 15 defense in the FCS in Montana State that helped push him to the national title game. He was a big part of shutting down Sam Houston, which helped that Cinderella run for them. So, He's incredible. And for me personally, he's LB3. I think we kind of know on the Kobe Dean and Devin Lloyd, they got the first two and he's raw and he's, he's unpolished, but the athleticism you can't teach the pursuits you can't teach. And like you said, he's so young at the position. You can mold him into really that prototypical backer in the league now, because everybody needs a linebacker that can run a four, 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 five. Cause you do have to keep up with these versatile school army knife linebackers. You may have to cover a tight end, like a Kyle Pitts. Sometimes you may be even matched up with a slot receiver, depending on the base packages. So he's a phenomenal talent. And I think the combine he had and a tape he shown wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make it out of round two. That's how high I'm on on that guy up next we're going to go to quarterback stocks that possibly improved um it's a weak quarterback class blue to say the least so this combine was really important for some guys to shine bright and shine the brightest so we're gonna go quarterback by quarterback desmond ritter how did he look to you at the combine i, I know he ran the fastest 40 out of all the quarterbacks and did you feel like he improved his stock with a somewhat solid showing in indy yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to. I mean, especially with just his athleticism, because you it, the days of the statue in the pocket are over. And this guy runs runs a four five two, and then has a thirty six inch vert and a ten and a ten foot seven broad jump. I mean, the guy is just so athletic. And then on top of that, I thought he performed really well at the Senior Bowl as well. He's he's got an arm on him. 
and really and truly an underrated aspect of Desmond Ritter's game. And everyone's going to say, oh, we played at Cincinnati. Give me a break. He's a winner and a leader. I mean, he was the winningest FBS quarterback to end his career with more than with more than like 12 starts. I mean, he only lost six games in his college career, I believe, including the one to Alabama. That's an that's a and a winning intangible is something you can't teach. And so I think him bringing that in is a big deal. I think he his his measurables are there. He's tall. He's and he weighed in. I think at two eleven, which is a solid weight for his for his height. And for me, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. His throwing. His throwing ability and lack of turnover and good decision-making has improved year in and year out at Cincinnati. So I think Desmond Ritter really did help his case. And, you know, when I'm look, when I'm ranking quarterbacks, I feel like he is just vastly underrated when it comes to the quarterback rankings. Like, I don't think it's a for sure thing that he's not QB one, two, or three. Like, and a lot of people have him down all the way in like fifth or sixth spot, but I, I really do think Desmond Ritter could have a future in the NFL and could potentially be the most accomplished quarterback out of this out of this quarterback class. Yeah, there's a lot of guys at PFF. They like they like Ritter. I thought Desmond was well. He performed well at the Senior Bowl. He performed well at the Combine in Indy. I think the four five time and the forty shocked me. So that, I think that will only elevate his stock. But I thought he looked pretty well in the passing drills, anticipation wise. The only knock on Ritter is. It's really accuracy because the one thing he has on all these quarterbacks is he can diagnose a defense. He can get under center. He can read defenses. He can go through his progressions and he can make the right play. Like he's going to make the right read and make the right play. The question is, will the ball accurately get there? And his Alabama tape doesn't look the greatest. His ball got batted down five times at the line of scrimmage. And there's a lot of talks of how it's really his throwing motion isn't bad. It's more of a mechanical thing that he's getting worked on with. Um, I think the same QB coach that polished up Josh Allen. Look how that turned out for Allen. So he has a chance when it's all said and done to probably look back at it all. He could be a QB two or one in the next four years. And I thought some people said it best. Some people comped him to Ryan Tannehill. Some people comped him to Alex Smith. I feel like his ceiling is a little bit higher than those guys because you don't have to condense the playbook with them. It'll all come down to just the accuracy for him. I, I think he has everything else. He's he's intuitively smart. He's a winner. He's a gamer. And he's got the wheels. I mean, the wheels is just another bonus that it seems like every quarterback has wheels now as we head into the new generation of the signal call in the NFL. So that's why I feel like Ritter improved his stock, in my opinion, at the senior bowl and at the combine. And that was important because the last taste we had of him was his performance in the college football playoff. That, to be honest, looking back at that film, wasn't all on him. Guys dropped passes and whatnot. And you're going against an Alabama defense. They're no slouch every year. Um, next up, Malik Willis. He's been the talk of the town at the Senior Bowl and at the Combine. Um, what, what have you seen from Malik from his time at Auburn to his time at Liberty and to all the hype he's getting now at the pre-draft process? Are you buying into this ceiling that's so surreal that if he's able to live up to it, he can be QB1 in his class? I mean, I think right now you got you. It's I would probably have him QB one if I had to rank my quarterbacks right now because, man, at the combine he was slinging it. It's not about the testing numbers or anything. It's how he was throwing the football. He had some dimes in Indianapolis, and at the Senior Bowl he was probably the best quarterback there. And the number, the word that you put to Malik Willis's name is gamer. 
if you're looking for a guy who is just going to go out there and play football, that's Malik Willis. He, he might make mistakes. He, he, you know, he might have a few bad plays, but guess what? The next draft, he's probably going to make some miraculous play happen and, and, and make it work. And so I think Malik Willis is a gamble, but I do think that he probably has the highest ceiling of any quarterback in this, in this NFL draft class. And at Auburn, he really didn't get a shot politics, offensive scheme fits, Bo Nix coming in, not really throwing the football. It's not it's not great looking back, but he was explosive when he got the ball in his hands at Auburn. And then in that Hugh Freeze offense at Liberty, to lead Liberty to what they were accomplishing with Malik Willis at quarterback, I don't think people are really realizing how stout that was. I mean, they were beating teams like Virginia Tech and and all these ACC teams and going 11 and one and being in the top 20 in the country. And that's the Liberty Flames. And I don't think people really put that together. And, and Hugh Freeze got a lot of credit, but I don't think Hugh Freeze is accomplishing what he was accomplishing at Liberty without Malik Willis. And I think what you're seeing is the film at Liberty is being backed up at the Senior Bowl, being backed up at the NFL Combine. And right now, I mean, I don't think you could have a good argument that anyone belongs above him in these QB rankings. Yeah, with Malik, it's kind of reminds me of Josh Allen. When he came out of Wyoming, the knock on Allen was the numbers didn't look good. And the automatic thing that people brought up about Allen was he didn't dominate competition at Wyoming. But when you turn on the tape and you see a few throws, you're like, yo, <laughs> that's an NFL arm. And if he's able to work himself from the waist up, you're going to have a pretty good pro. And we have a pretty good pro now. And that's the same thing with Malik Willis. The arm talent is incredible. He can make all of the throws. I think for him, it's just about the base up. He's going to have to really work on his footwork, work on the mechanics, um, shore up that delivery. But he was he was slinging him in, like you said, the combine. He was ripping it. It came out with a zip that all the other quarterbacks just didn't have. And then that bomb he threw to Garrett Wilson that was trending all over social media kind of cemented what he's been like from the senior bowl to now. He's really made the pre-draft process his. And he's kind of take ownership to the point where now I'm hearing talks about Detroit may take him too. I think that's a little extreme, but he's a first round talent for sure. And in my opinion, he's QB one for me as well. We're going to get to Kenny Pickett later, but I understand the love affair with Pickett because he's a safe bet. He's more of a refined product. And when you get Malik, you're going to have to work with him and it might not hit home in the first two years. But at the end of that rookie contract, when he puts it all together, you will leave from it like, man, we found our franchise guy. And in a draft where there's several teams that will be goaded by a chance of getting a quarterback that can help put their franchise back on the map, he's a guy you, I think all of those teams want to consider and really put all their chips in to make it happen. He, he kind of reminds me of like a bigger Kyler Murray because, you know, Kyler Murray had the had the stock as high as it did because he was a Heisman Trophy winner coming out of Oklahoma and Cliff Kingsbury had the Oklahoma connection. And we, you all, we all know what played out behind the scenes, but he just reminds me of a bigger Kyler Murray where it's going to be a project. Kyler Murray didn't come in and just – you know, go out and win MVP and everything like that. But he has the athleticism and he has the, the the ridiculous arm strength and he's a gamer. And those guys really mirror each other where if you don't have a spot on him, he's going to run and he, he's going to get a lot of yards. And he's going to make some plays and, and he's going to make some mistakes. Kyler Murray's prone to making mistakes. He'll have the fumble. So I have a few interceptions, but when it all comes down to it, he's the guy you look for to make a play. And that kind of reminds me of what you're going to get Malik Willis, but he doesn't have as any questions about his size because Malik Willis is much bigger than what Kyler Murray was coming out of Oklahoma. 
Kyler Murray is not a bad comp. As short as he was, the thing that popped off the screen for me, NFL arm. It was just natural. You know, for, for me personally, when Malik reminds me of like a more higher upside version of Dak Prescott. When Dak came out of Mississippi State, he had that build. He was athletic. He was more of a run guy. And then he worked and developed as a passer to where he is today. Malik's a lot more refined as a passer than Dak was coming out of Mississippi State. And I think if he's, if he's able to refine his passing game as well, and they continue to incorporate his athleticism, that rushing ability, he'll be one of the more premier dual threat quarterbacks in all of football, which is crazy because as these old guards are leaving the league, you got the likes now of Kyler, Lamar, Patrick, Herbert, Burrow. The NFL is, some, is in some really, really good hands moving forward. Um, now it's time for the man of the hour, Kenny Pickett. Um, his process from the senior bowl, to Indy, it's been topsy-turvy. I didn't think he looked bad in Indy. I thought he threw the ball particularly well, but got to talk about the hand sides. He's got eight-inch hands, and I know a lot of people when that came out was like, well, Joe Burrow had those small hands, and look how he turned out. But the difference between, I think, Pickett and Burrow is Burrow had probably didn't have the strongest arm, but he was pinpoint accurate. Kenny Pickett's accuracy came and went a little bit at Pitt. He has been a lot more of a project to the point where he's refined now, but it's taken him a while. And He's got to wear gloves to be productive to where we kind of both understand. I don't think Kenny Pickett can survive in an NFL environment where he's playing outdoors. A dome team is probably going to have to pick him to be successful. Do you feel that those limitations will help de-escalate what he can be as a pro moving forward? Um, You know, the hand size is a little concerning. I mean, eight and a half inches is pretty small for a quarterback. I don't think anyone in the NFL other than Taysom Hill has anything under a nine-inch hand. Um, but you know, I'm not going to be the one to say like a hand size is going to be his detriment. Um, he was a project guy, but I've always said on my show, he really reminds me of Justin Herbert in terms of the fact of his progression, because Herbert came out in Oregon, started early, didn't play well, wasn't on anyone's radar. Sophomore got a little bit better on a few more radars, junior year little bit better and then finally his last year at Oregon goes on wins to Rose Bowl has an outstanding year and coming into the draft process he wasn't the flashy guy Tua was flashy Joe Burrow was flashy and everyone just kind of said okay Herbert's a safe bet and that's kind of what you're getting with Pickett you're getting an NFL guy an NFL you know in terms of height weight arm strength you're getting an NFL ready guy with a lot of experience that played in an offense that didn't have a lot of talent that Oregon offense under with Herbert didn't really have a lot of talent until his final year. And you saw what he did with that talent with Pickett. You finally get Jordan Addison in there. You get a little bit of a run game. You get some, an offensive line to protect him because Pickett um, the previous year, his, he had the highest drop rate for his wide receivers for the past two seasons. And his offensive line was one of the worst in the ACC this year. They fixed that and look what he does. He's a Heisman candidate. And so for me, he projects a little bit like a Justin Herbert without, you know, the hand with, with, without the hand size argument, but in terms of everything else, he reminds me of Herbert. And I think he's a safe bet. Like you said, um, you know, for, for the hand thing with the gloves, you know, maybe, you know, he can't play in like Buffalo. When it's like negative 50 and, you know, it's raining sideways and the field goal post are about to tip over, you know, that's tough for anyone to play in. I mean, Josh Allen looked atrocious in that weather when they played the Patriots. I mean, what that game was Bill Belichick threw one pass that game. And so I don't think that's fair to really judge him there. But I think if he plays in a southern environment, he'll be fine. And, you know, I know Jacksonville doesn't need a quarterback, but Jacksonville, Miami, Tampa, I mean, even New Orleans with the Dome, I mean, I think any Southern environment, Tennessee potentially, I don't think has very bad weather, you know, 
at most months of the year. I don't think he'll be, I don't think that's really going to factor too much into the decision-making his productions there, the films there. He killed interviews from everyone I talked to up there. I think Kenny Pickett's still a first round quarterback, but if he doesn't work out, everyone's going to point to the hands and that's just hindsight bias in my opinion. Yeah. With Pickett, he's QB two for me and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a problem with him going as QB one. I think the, the Herbert comparisons is unique, but I understand what you're saying in the context of progression, like leading up to the draft, Herbert wasn't that guy. It was really Burrow and Tua. And then Herbert was like the third guy, like the consolation prize. I mean, that's what Herbert was. And now looking back at it, Herbert is no longer the consolation. He's got next up right behind Burrow. With Pickett, he's an NFL caliber quarterback that has enough of an arm where I don't think it's a noodle-esque arm like a Tua. He's accurate enough. I don't think it's going to be supremely wayward to where when he comes to an NFL offense, you're going to be questioning, wow, he can't make those throws. We really got to reel him in and build him up to get to that point. But I think it really just comes down to he is a fair weather quarterback in the context of conditions are going to have to be conducive to what he can do. And he could play in a probably in an a in an NFC South where Atlanta has a dome, New Orleans has a dome, Tampa outside of rain it's pretty very nice there the roughest weather part of that division is carolina because it's close to the atlantic ocean so i think it's re- that's really what's coming going to come down to picking i saw a lot of guys have the saints picking them at 18 i wouldn't have an issue with it considering what the saints do at the quarterback position if that's not resolved i have no problem taking pick it at 18 but he's the type of guy where hand size alone i don't think he'll ever live up to the burrow type hype because i feel like his ceiling is a little bit more maxed but i think when it's all said and done when we look back at it all you'll get a solid quarterback. And I think that's what you kind of want from this class because this class doesn't have a ton of generational guys like next year's where it's going to be Bryce Young, um, Stroud, and all those guys. You, you just want to come out of this draft where if one guy is a pro bowler and then you get two guys that are pros, that's a win. And you can work with that from there. Um, another guy I want to touch base on, EJ Perry. He, he, looked, he looked nice. He looked nice at the combine. He looked really nice at the Shrine game. He really popped off the screen as he helped lead um, his Shrine team back. They weren't able to get the win. He really just really needed to come in and showcase to everybody that he has what it takes to be an NFL quarterback. Probably not that long-term starter, but just a guy you can keep around as a backup to where if your guy goes down, he can come in as an emergency relief cat and hold the fourth down for a month in time. And you're a guy where I think the thing that stood out the most about Perry at the combine when it was over, had trash all over the ground. He was picking that up just to showcase the leadership, the intangibles, and the take charge mentality that you need at the QB position. And you highlighted that as basically saying on social media, that's been Perry his whole time at Brown, his whole time in his collegiate career. What have you liked about Perry from an intangible standpoint? And how do you feel like his pro, his individual talent can translate at the pro level? You know, like the, the biggest thing for me is uh, it, like, that's the biggest Ivy League move I've ever seeing like like no other play like it if if i gave you a player picking up trash after the thing i was like what conference did he come from like ivy league like it has to be an ivy league guy that is staying after practice and picking up the trash and 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 it's and you know i think you see that in the ivy league as a whole to be elected captain at brown at harvard at yale at at princeton is a big deal it's not like being elected captain at, you know, I don't want to call any school out. Well, I won't name any because I know the fans are going to be upset if I name them. But it's a bigger deal than it is other places because at that at that school with the, with the, those schools with the history, the, the what it means, because they all have like one captain. 
in the Ivy League. I know Harvard definitely does, and it's a big deal. And they have all the names on like etched in stone, and it's a it's a big thing. So for him to be a leader of an Ivy League school is one shows us intangibles there. Two, there ain't no scrubs coming out of Ivy League schools. If you got a degree from any of those Ivy League schools, you know they're smart. You know they can work hard. You know they they you know they're gonna have work life balance. Because to be an athlete at an Ivy League school is not the same thing as being an athlete at any other school in the country. It is much harder to get a degree and stay balanced with what you're doing at the Ivy League programs. And I heard he killed his interviews, man. I heard he's a down-to-earth guy. I heard that he's smart when it comes to the football field. I heard that he's personable. And, you know, he's the in, in one, one of the feedbacks I've read is he's the guy that you would want your daughter to date. And it it just all fits and what and what you see sometimes is the interviews don't match up to the feedback you get from the coaches because you can train for an interview i could sit here and train for weeks and i can nail an interview with something that i have no business nailing but then if you go talk to you know friends coaches previous employers etc and that doesn't match up then they got questions for e for ej it matches up because there's not a single person you can find on Brown's campus that doesn't have a good word to say about him. And so I think it I think it means a lot and then for him to go out there and ball out like he did this postseason, you mentioned the you mentioned the um the, the bowl game he was in, you mentioned the NFL combine. He looked every bit the part and I think it's showing that Ivy Leagues have have a lot of talent too. A lot of people just forget because they don't play in the FCS playoffs or not on TV a lot. They're kind of, you know, a lot of people like to say the SWAC and MEAC are isolated. The Ivy League has isolation down to a, to a, I mean, you don't, that is the impenetrable, like isolationist, like mindset up there. And, you know, they play out of conference games and they win. Harvard beat Holy Cross this year, which was a second, third round team in the FCS playoffs, but they're by themselves and you forget how much good talent comes out of the Ivy League. I mean, they got some ballers, and I think EJ has put that on display this offseason. Yeah, man. Ivy League, no joke. They they do their own thing, their own conference. Like you said, they don't compete in postseason, FCS postseason play. But when it's all said and done, you always have a couple of pros that come out of those institutions, exactly. and they translate and they play well. First name that pops off my brain is Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's had a journeyman-type career, making his imprint all across the league landscape. Hey, he he but, was in Super Bowl like four. It's all good. He's been in the league <laughs> like his whole life. I don't. He was born into an NFL roster. He was. He was indeed. And for Perry, like just his whole personality, everything you described, that's going to help you stay in the league as long as you can. Even if you're never able to translate into that starting caliber guy you can always hold a roster spot for 10 to 12 years just being by that great people person a professional uh mentor of men that's all going to be important as well but as the player um he man like he was making those throws he's got the he's mobile he's a gamer and he's a guy where you could see maybe in a in a organization where there's question marks at quarterback and they have a battle and he's able to win it and maybe for like a year or two, hold his own and showcase to everybody. Maybe I'm not that long-term franchise guy, but I belong in this league and are here to stay. And so he, I think, in my opinion, his performance at the Shrine Bowl and his performance at the Combine, I think he played his way to be drafted, literally. And he's got what it takes, I think, to last in the league. And, and I mean, another FCS guy, too, I don't know if you were going to talk about him, Cole Kelly. Jesus, man. that that I mean, listen, I know people are talking about Malik's arm and everything. I would put Cole. I would put my money on Cole Kelly for the strongest arm in the NFL draft. I don't think there's anybody that's even going to come within ten yards of him. I mean, and I know this is crazy, but there are people talking about Josh Allen comparisons with him, just because of his size. His I mean, and you want to talk about accurate? 
That guy threw for six touchdowns and 500 yards while completing 85% of his passes in a game this year. He threw it 40 times. He completed 80, like 3% of his pass. I mean, are you serious? And this year he completed, I think for the year, man, um, him and Shador were right there. I mean, he completed like 70 something percent of his passes this year. And he's done that for two straight seasons. And and if it wasn't for Eric Berry, you can make an argument. He was, he could be a two time Walter Payton of the year award winner. Um, from Cole Kelly. And when you look at the arm strength, the production, how he's developed, you know, from the time at Arkansas to the time now, man, I've really, if I'm a team and I'm sitting there fourth, fifth round, sixth round, I got a little bit of questions at quarterback. I'm looking at Cole Kelly, like, can I bring this guy in and just maybe, I mean, it, it could be a question mark, but when you look at the physical tools, six, seven, two, sixty, and could throw the ball out of the stadium, I'll, I'll take my chances. Hey, I agree, man. Cole Kelly has a gun. He showed that at the combine. He showed that at the Shrine. We showed that all year. And his development from Arkansas to southeastern Louisiana has been phenomenal. And that offense was no joke. They spread it out. They put a lot on his plate to make plays. I think all the swag world got a rude awakening when he dominated fan. I, I tried to tell people, man, Cole <laughs> Kelly's no joke. That's that's an assassin right there. Right, a for real assassin. He can play. And Josh Allen comparisons isn't bad because he's about that kind of same measurable. He's got a huge arm as well. He can make all the throws. And look, late rounds, taking a flyer on him could pay off because he could translate and be a legit starter in the league. It's just really all about surroundings and what they ask for him to do. But he's an NFL-type talent for sure indeed. Um, last but not least, before we head into the disappointments, um, Sam Howell, he's been all over the place at the quarterback room. He had that great – I mean, his career in North Carolina, it's been it's been crazy. He had that great freshman year, and his sophomore season, he was solid. And then after his sophomore year, all that NFL talent on that offense disappears. It's up to him now to kind of pick that team up and carry them. And to be fair, his offensive line sucked. The receivers just weren't the same. Um, it was just him out there on an island, and he struggled. And so now he's at a point where his NFL stock has been topsy-turvy. Some guys feel – He's got NFL capabilities to where if you plug him in within a system that's refined offensively and you're asking him to just manage it, he can survive. And then there's just other guys that's like, man, his stock really took a toll for the worst, and I don't know if he can ever be that guy again. Well, what was your perspective on Sam Howell, the quarterback, freshman year to now, and what truly is he as a player? Because we've seen three different versions of him so far. Oh, man, you know, it's funny. Um, after his freshman year, you know, I had my co-host Brandon at that time. Um, he deemed me the, the uh, leader of the Sam Howell fan club. I thought he, I mean, listen, Tom Brady-esque as what I would tell you after his freshman. I mean, th that kid came out in that, in that class with, with the, how deep it was at quarterback and just shine to take North Carolina to where he was taking them was just unbelievable. But you look at their losses. They lost, I think four starting offensive linemen, both wide receivers and De'Ami Brown. And I'm blanking on the other kid's name. Um, that they lost uh, um, Newsom, uh, Daz Newsom, and then you lose Michael Carter and Javante Williams, who probably are going to be two starting running backs in the NFL this upcoming year. That defense took a big step back, which I don't think anyone expected. I don't put this on, you know, Sam Howell's back really and truly. I mean, he was throwing for like 400 yards a game, and they were still getting just beat down. It's like I don't know what you ex I don't know what you want him to do. They couldn't run the ball very well. Todd Chandler was off and on. You mentioned the offensive line couldn't block a soul. I mean, Syracuse was teeing off on him. And Syracuse, I don't think anyone listening could name a single pass rusher from Syracuse that should have a sack against North Carolina. Um, but looking at him, 
I feel like he's got the he's got like the widest range where he could be the highest of high ceilings or the lowest of lows. I mean, like I think he's so hit or miss that a lot of teams are gonna back off of him. But I mean, I think if you're sitting there at 32 through like 45, 46, somewhere in those picks, and you got a question at quarterback, you're talking about a guy who a lot of people thought was going to be the first pick in the draft just like eight months ago. And so I think he's still worth a flyer. He has talent. He's a gamer. He's got the arm strength. He's got the decision-making. And you know that when everything's going right, I think if, if you put every quarterback in their perfect situation, Sam Howell is the best out of all of them. But it just he couldn't for some reason he couldn't put it together in North Carolina. So it does make me worry because it could be a Baker Mayfield situation where he comes in and he plays well early and then the situation falters underneath him and then he falters. Or he can come in and and put on a show like a lot of people think he could. Um, but for me, I think I would I wouldn't take I would probably not draft him in the top 25. I had a top 25 pick. There's too many athletes, too many good receivers, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, that I just I can't take a flyer on him, man, until probably late first if I'm like a playoff contender team and I want to sit him behind an older guy. You know, you know, like last year, if the Bucks were sitting at 32, I would draft a Sam Howell like they did a Kyle Trask and sit him behind Brady or sit him behind Breeze when the Saints had Breeze. You know, maybe someone takes a flyer on him like that. But for me, man, a second to third round probably right now for Sam Howell. Yeah, out of all the guys, he's the guy that probably needs – the old line and the weapons that could create space. If he doesn't have that and you're expecting him to come in and really just carry your offense, good luck. Cause I don't really see that happening. And I knew it was going to be a long year for Sam when they played Virginia tech and Blacksburg to start the year. And he was getting murdered. I'm like, yo, oh, yeah. I don't, it, I don't know how he's going to survive. To be fair. Banjo ran a four, three, what one or two as a defensive end. I mean, listen, the kid, the kid's a stud, but I agree with you, man. I mean, he got, that might have been the worst offensive line performance I've ever seen. I mean, I've never seen men, you know, I'm a former O-lineman, so I'm a geek out here for a second, sorry. But they walked both linebackers down in the A-gaps, and neither of them got touched. How in the – how does – I don't – how does that happen as an offensive lineman? You got someone from right in front of me, like this computer is, and I don't touch it. I don't even get a hand on them and you getting smacked in the pocket. And they're like, man, Sam Howell had a horrible game week one. I'm like, if you get pressure up the a gap with a linebacker running a four, four that didn't get touched. Listen, I don't care if it's Tua, CJ Stroud, Tom Brady, Joe Namath, name the quarterback, Lamar Jackson. You're done. You cannot get pressure up the a gap with two, with a double linebacker blitz and neither of them get blocked. That's what he was facing all year. So it's one of those situations where, it's tough. Like there were games where he had solid pressure and it was just inconsistent passing wise. And maybe you could attribute that to the ghost of the year where it's just like, man, I don't like I look, I'm protected. But am I really so with how, like I said, out of all the guys that are like top five to have a chance to go early on um, first two rounds, he's the guy that probably needs the perfect situation. So if a team like Tampa Bay, if a team like New Orleans, if a team like uh, Indianapolis, if they take him. All have solid O-lines, all have a solid running game, all have one or two quality weapons. He could probably in the next four to five years be solid. But if <laughs> Pittsburgh takes him, you know, where the O-lines is all over the place, it's like, Sam, bring us home. Good luck. I think that's unfair to the guy, and he won't be successful at the next uh, level. Uh, you know, for me, looking at team fits for all these quarterbacks, so I'm starting to kind of get into my breakdown of that. I really like the Vikings taking a flyer on him, sit him behind Kirk, 
You, you paid him. You got two or three years behind Kirk. He's getting up there. You got you, you got Justin Jefferson. You got Thielen, a younger line led by Vera Tucker. You got a great, you got a solid defense. You got Dalvin Cook at the running back spot. Man, you want to talk about weapons? Go ahead and go ahead and give it to him. And so I, I really, I've, if I had to pick a perfect situation for him, you know, logically, I mean, without replacing a, a, a mainstay starter, I think the Vikings would be a perfect situation for Sam Howell. Vikings would not be bad. Uh, you said Tucker. Uh, Vikings don't have very Tucker. They have Darisol, who didn't oh, yeah, really Darisol, play a lot. Yeah. Throughout they, his... they traded. I forgot about this. Yeah. Man, those trades kill trade. you, man. They got a draft and then don't get to keep <laughs> the player. They draft like the NBA now. Right. <laughs> right. Indeed. Indeed. Vikings is not bad. They're building up their O-line. Um, even if Dalvin Cook is no longer a mainstay there, because you're talking about cleaning house in Minnesota, all the cap as they start to rebuild, you can always get another guy back in there. I like Naquamu from Iowa State. He was solid. So you got a running game behind him. You got Justin Jefferson on the outside. He's going to always open it up for him. Minnesota's perfect. Places where there's offensive stability, whether it's a prime receiver, structural offensive line, you got an offensive coach that can get the best out of you, Kevin O'Connell. A lot of guys are high on him. Places like that he can be successful in, but yeah. I just don't want Sam to go somewhere where it's just like Washington even, even, or something. Yeah. yeah, even Tennessee, I feel like, would be solid. You got A.J. at the wide receiver spot. Derrick Henry is a, is a man amongst boys. No pressure on him there. The offensive line is still solid. It's getting up there in age. I think they need to kind of work some stuff out, especially at the guard spot, because they really whiffed with that Georgia pick. I forget his name, who is already out of the league. I think I saw a graphic today where – uh, their draft from 2020, all seven of their picks are out of the league or not on the team anymore. That is atrocious drafting by Tennessee. So they got some problem, but I think right now, if you're looking at a perfect scenario, right as we're talking today, Tennessee is right up there too. Cause you got, you got Tannehill that you could sit behind for a year or two. Cause I don't think they want to move forward with Tannehill for the long term. I would hope not at least. Yeah, Sam, we named like 16s for you. So you're going to have a place in the league, buddy. <laughs> it's going to work out for you somehow. Some way. Now, moving on to disappointing combine performances, I got three specifically. Um, so we're going to go step by step, kind of like how we did with the first topic. So, Blue, going to start with you. Which guy coming into the combine you were high on and then they just didn't test well and it just really made you reevaluate what they could be as a pro? Man, you just want to break my heart today. This is uh, I hate I hate calling people out. But because I like both of the like my first two, I really was high on. I was like, man, these are my guys. Like I'm gonna rock with them through the draft. But Kyron Williams, Jesus, man, what what happened? You went from leading Notre Dame over Clemson to running the slowest 40 yard dash of any player like in attendance for your position at a four six five. At running that's not gonna work at running back. I'm sorry, it's a four six five is not gonna work. He only had a 32 inch vert, a nine eight broad jump, just. I mean, atrocious. What is happening? And, you know, his performance this year wasn't great either, and I blamed it all year on the offensive line because the offensive line was very young for Notre Dame. They lost a lot of pieces. And, you know, they, they the offensive court play calling, the, the quarterback rotation that they had was ridiculous. I get it. But with the lack of production this year and these numbers, I don't know if Kyron Williams gets drafted. He went from potentially a third, fourth-round pick to I wouldn't touch him. And I really like this kid's film from his freshman year. But this past year with these numbers, I can't touch them. And Kyron Williams, for me, really let me down because I was expecting a lot more out of him. Wow. Okay, so with Kyron, I'm going to be honest. I thought 
certain experts did a good job of preparing the viewers on Kyron's not going to run a fast 40. They did a pretty good job. They're like, look, he's a gamer. It's just when it comes to the straight line speed, he's not that guy. So when he turned out that four six, they were kind of like, well, we expected worse, which isn't good, but you know, we expected worse. But you know, when I look at Kyron, he reminds me a lot of Pierre Thomas and Pierre Thomas was never a burner, but he was physical. He could, um, take the top off a of defense you gave him a crease and he was pretty good as a runner on the boundaries but I do agree that's still slow so I think what limits Kyron is in my opinion he won't be an every down back at the next level I think those every down backs are going to be reserved for Kenneth Walker Brees Hall Isaiah Spiller he's going to be more like a rotational rotational guy exactly how Pierre Thomas was with the Saints when it was him Reggie Bush and I think Mike Bell Deuce McAllister occasionally that's going to be him so you're going to get value in that He's also can catch out the backfield, but I understand Kyron being low because that's too slow as a bag. Like as a bag, you can't run anything under a four or five. Like at least I need, yep. I need especially this under. year. Especially yes. this year. I mean, you had linebackers running like four three. Maybe you had defensive linemen running four, like low four threes. Like, I need you to and listen, straight line speed isn't everything, but he didn't look good at anything he did. And, and for me, I got to put I got to put your production on the line now. Was it the offensive line or was it you not making plays? And so I, I like I want, you know, I might have been a little exaggeration, but I am looking at him very sideways now when I'm looking at the running back rankings. Like he went from probably top right there in my top five to like, ooh, I don't know. All, hey, all valid, all valid with Kyron. For me, it was Traylon Burks, man. I, oh, I was yeah. I like this tape. You know, I was like, yo, everybody was like, he's the next Debo or DK. So I'm like, man, this combo, he's going to kill the 40. He's going to push out 20 reps. It's going to go crazy. And he ran a four, five, five. And then he ran the receiving drills. He was slipping and falling in and out of his breaks. I'm like, yo, what is this? And then I heard at his pro day, he only did 12 reps. That's disappointing. And here's why with Traylon. So with Traylon, for a lot of guys leading up to this process, he was number one receiver because of the size because of the projected speed and because of the versatility he showcased in Arkansas, where his agent did a great job of telling everyone, yo, quarterback play's been inconsistent since Traylon's been in Arkansas, but he's still making plays. He's still a gamer. Although I thought, you know, KJ Jefferson wasn't bad this year. He was making some nice throws. But with Burks, man, he's, he's a, he can't run routes. So if you can't run routes, you got to be able to take the top off the defense or be some type of physical specimen to where until you learn a route tree, you can come in and I know you can block. You can come in. I know you can be a solid possession receiver or you can come in and take the top off a of defense as you round out what it means to be a professional at the next level as a receiver. And rank of four or five means you're not going to you're not that straight line speed guy. So what will you be at the next level early on? Now I got to start worrying about Nikhil Harry comparisons where Nikhil Harry's not a burner and he's not the greatest route runner. So now you become a possession receiver. And then when you're not catching the football, what is your worth on the field? So Traylon was disappointing to where I don't – I think he'll go in the first round, but he's not going to be a top three receiver taking off. I think that's for Drake London, for Garrett Wilson, for Jamison Williams, for those guys. They got that. Burke really lost him some money at the combine for sure. Oh, yeah. That was my number two guy. I mean, listen, and I was one of those guys. I had him as no wide receiver one coming into the week. I was like, man, I watched this kid's film. He was bullying people in the SEC, and I mean – and I'm hoping that it's something where it was like, you know, your your test, you know, you're just not a te- you're, you're not a combine guy and that you're just go out there and ball. Because, I mean, you know, you look at like a Jerry Rice or someone like that who they're not going to test very well looking at everything. But when you suit up on Sundays, 
going to go make some money. And I'm hoping that's what it is. But right now, man, you're looking at him like, I don't know if I can draft you top 15 right this second. Uh, with, with the numbers that some of these other wide receivers put up, I mean, he's lucky Jamison Williams could not participate. Because, because if you're looking for a combine guy, that's Jamison. He would have ran a 4-2, low 4-2. I mean, he probably he could have set the record really and truly if he was fully healthy for 40s, and he would have looked really good in the drills because he's fast and athletic and very nimble with his feet. But Traylon Burks just looked, like you said, kind of like clunky out there. He didn't look athletic, and that's something that doesn't match up with his film, which makes me wonder, you know, is he just not a tester? Is he more of a gamer? But you can't take that chance when there's millions of dollars and Super Bowls on the line if you're an NFL team. So I think he probably went from wide receiver one to wide receiver probably four or five. And I think you can make an argument. You know, you mentioned Olave. You mentioned Wilson. You mentioned Williams. I, I, right now, I like Christian Watson more than I like Traylon Burks coming out of the combine. So how far did he fall on draft, you know, boards? And for me, as funny as it is, I'm looking at the Patriots. Is Bill Belichick going to say he looks like a gamer on film? Let me take a flyer on him. And is it going to be another Nikhil Harris? Because that's kind of what people said about Nikhil Harry, like you mentioned, is where he's a gamer. He just doesn't test well. And so Traylon Burks, for me, he can he can be the next big thing in the NFL wide receiver, like the biggest steal. Like how did he fall? Kind of like a Justin Jefferson where how did he go that low? Or you could draft him in the first round, and then you're going to find yourself on some NFL.com list 10 years down the line. Like, can you believe they use pick 16 on Traylon Burks? He's a bust. And so he's got a very wide range now, and I'm worried about him because I had such high expectations. Yeah, because the thing that Burks was able to bring to the table is he's raw, but he's an athlete. Like, he's physically yep. imposing. He's got that blistering speed. And, you know, with DK Metcalf, he wasn't the most refined route runner, but he ran a sub-4-3. You know, he was strong as an ox um, when he had the ball in his hands. He was running people over and burning guys. He just couldn't stay healthy. That was his issue at Ole Miss. So when he didn't dominate in the shoulder drills, it was kind of like, OK, that's a little bit you know disappointing. But we know fully healthy DK can translate. And he did. Debo Samuel as well was a Swiss Army knife, but we never questioned his strength. We never questioned his speed. Debo, could, he can run routes, too. So with, with Burks, you're limited as a route runner. You're not going to take the top off of defenses. You're not as physically imposing as we thought from a Bruce Stris standpoint. So what can you provide for us at the next level? Too many questions. And the worst thing about it all, this is a deep receiver class. So yep. now guys can just be like, you know what? I could take a chance on a faster guy like a Sky Moore who may not be physically imposing, but I know Sky Moore can run the route tree, can take a top off of defense. I can work with that more so than a Traylon Burks. Um, last guy for you, particularly, which one, which last guy you had, that was the most disappointing that you had high hopes on in the combine. Um, I mean, some people had him as a top five pick and it was DeMarvin Leal for me from Texas A&M defensive tackle. He, listen, I did not expect him to come in and weigh 283. That is tiny compared to what some of these other defensive tackles came in here weigh. Like if you look at like a Jordan Davis or even, you know, at the defensive end position, like a Trevon Walker, for Georgia, I mean, 283, five-second 40. That just – it isn't going to work for me, man. It, it, it isn't. And he he didn't look athletic. He didn't look like he had the hip bend. He, he just looked – he just looked like a big dude out there. 
I, it was just size. It, it was just like he didn't weigh enough to be a deep tackle, but he still just looked like an oversized dude that wasn't athletic. And I didn't like how that looked, especially when you compare him to a Jordan Davis ran a four seven at the 40 and was 340. 340 and running a four seven, and you can't come in at 285 as a defensive tackle. And when you look at the age of defensive tackles with the with the Aaron Donalds and, and the future Jordan Davises, I mean, two two 283 isn't gonna work. I'm sorry. And that's not a top 10 pick to me for a defensive tackle. When these offensive, I mean, listen, I'm say what you want. Quentin Nelson would eat 283 for lunch on the inside of a, on the, on the inside. It, it just isn't. And Jonathan Taylor's running for 400 yards that game. Cause you are not going to have a stand a chance against some of these O linemen. And also for you not to be very athletic and look like you were ready to be there really makes me worry. So I think DeMarvin Lill went from a top five pick just a few months ago to, I don't know if I'd use a first round pick on him. Man, 280 and you're running a five flat at that's not good. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Now yeah. I did I did miss court. I said three. This is actually second. We got one more, and then we're gonna go to the last topic. For me, it was Devin Lloyd. He ran a four six six as a middle linebacker, and that was not good, especially when you got um, you know, Troy Anderson out here running four four at the middle backer spot. Being a Mike, you gotta be able to run sideline to sideline at the next level. And sideline to sideline speed means you're not running under a four or five. I'm just being real. You're not running under a four or five and I'm on a four six. And then I'm looking at his tape and he just looks like a, a run stopper, which is fine. But that changes my whole perception on you. Now I can't draft you as LB two. If you're a four, six, six run stopper, because we're going to run base concepts where you're going to be on the field on some pass downs where you may have to match up against a Travis Kelsey. You may have to match up against a McCaffrey out the backfield. You may just have to match up in zone where, all right, you're going to have to drop back in this sector of the field and watch out for anything underneath on a flat route from a Justin Jefferson or a Devontae Adams. And so that wasn't good for Devin Lloyd at all. And honestly, with this linebacker class, in my opinion, I think Lloyd and Kobe Dean are a little bit overrated because in the standpoint of, you know, with Dean, he's small. And now with Lloyd, he's bigger than Dean, but he's slow. And so if you're going to take him, I think you're going to have to constrict what they can be as pros and kind of limit your limitations. And it'll be all about scheme fit more so than I could just plug this guy in. He's going to be a baller moving forward. Who is your guy that disappoints you at two? Um, man, for uh, like, you know, I was going to pick Kenny Pickett, but we already, you know, kind of talked about him. But you mentioned him. But you mentioned my guy is Nicobe Dean. I needed you to do something. Like, he just showed up and didn't do anything. And with some of the linebackers that had their performances, like a Troy Anderson and everything, I'm worried about people are going to kind of forget about N'Kobe Dean and what he can bring, especially because he got measured and he was, was what, 5'10", something, and then, like, didn't weigh that much. And so you, everyone's like, okay, it's undersized. Is he going to be fast? Didn't run the 40. Is he going to excel? Great. Didn't do the three-cone drill, 20-yard shuttle, nothing. Is he athletic? Didn't do the vertical. Didn't do the broad jump. I mean, he didn't do nothing. And so, for me, I think that was worrisome that the one thing he did, a lot of negative reviews about it because he's small, and then he didn't do nothing to kind of, you know, change people's mind because, you know, it's kind of like an interview where the, everyone's like, everyone's going to remember what you first say. You measured in. Everyone didn't like you, and then you didn't say nothing else. So now a lot of people are leaving the draft being like, what is Nicobe Dean? Is he gonna like you mentioned? Is he gonna be good enough to be an every down Mike linebacker? 
Are we going to have to move them? How is it going to fit into our scheme? And so now you're left after the combine with more questions about Nakobe Dean than when you came in. And so I think for him, that is as picky as it might be, I still think he was a loser of the NFL draft, even though he really didn't even do anything. Yeah, and the Nakobe stuff is spot on. And just seeing how dominant his Georgia contemporaries were on the line, now I got to ask, were you a product of those athletic freaks and natures up front where they're take, you know, where they're opening up lanes for you to run through and make plays. And it's not like you were the most surest tackler or a guy like a Michael Parsons that was just flying everywhere. It may just be a system guy. And so I think that like it opens the door for Troy Anderson out of Montana state to have his stock rise moving forward. And for him to probably be the better part of all of them because of his athletic ability and his versatility that I just don't see in Dean and Lloyd. My last guy was Wondell Robinson coming into the combine process, everybody marveled about his Swiss Army knife ability from Nebraska to Kentucky. Um, he could take a sweep to the crib. He could be a factor in the passing game. And his, his 40 time wasn't bad. He, he ran a 4-4. It's solid. But my issue is the arm lift was just a 27, 5.5, Like His hand size was just a 9. And so now I can't trust you to be a slot receiver at the next level because you're going to struggle to make routine catches because you just don't have the wingspan to stretch out for some sometimes inaccurate balls. So now that it constricts Wondell to just be a return guy. And I'm not taking a return guy in the first four rounds. I can just wait and get you at round five, six, or seven. And I thought it really hurt Wondell a lot because he was in those passing drills and he struggled to make some routine catches. He made them, but he's got to like stretch out for some easy ones. And that's really just because of the limitations he has being a short guy with short arms. And, you know, it's his fault, but not his fault. I mean, you're born with what you're born with. You got to work with what you got. But it just limits him at the next level and what he could be as a pro. Because now I don't know if I can trust you to be a Devontae Harris. Because I don't know if you're going to be able to make – you can probably run the route well, but I don't know if you can be able to finish the catch because of the limitations armless-wise. I think that's fair. I mean, I think more – I wonder if he can – you know, I think what would help him is if he's pitching himself as a Darren Sproles, where I have the vision. You know I got the vision to run the football because I can be a kick returner. Put me at running back. Put me at running back and let me be an Alvin Kamara, Darren Sproles type guy where I can come out the backfield and make some plays. Short passes, I don't have to run the full route tree. I can run Texas routes. I can come, I can, I can come out the backfield and just do something easy. Put me in space. I'm a playmaker. I'm fast. I'm athletic. Put me in space and let me go make plays. I think that still keeps his upside, but I do agree that I don't think he's going to project as like a, a wide receiver at the next level. Yeah, Sproles isn't bad. I think that's the next thing him and his agent need to do to promote the scouts. Look, I mean, I have the measurables to be a wide receiver, but at Nebraska and Kentucky, I did everything offensively, which meant I played a running back. So have me be a Sproles. Um, let me kind of build my body into a running back prototype. And then slowly but surely, you'll get the best value out of me. If he can translate into that, he's got a shot. But I think we both can agree wide receiver, probably not in his, in his no. picture. Um, last one, I'll leave going to talk about the Baylor speed. Tyquan Thornton and Kalen Barnes lit up the combine in the 40s, respectively. Kalen Barnes ran a 4 2 3, second fastest in history behind John Ross. Tyquan Thornton ran a 4 2 8, fastest time out of all the wide receivers. So, before we diverge into that, the knock on speed in combine history is that it doesn't always translate to gridiron success. For every Chris Johnson and Deion Sanders, there's a John Ross, a Dre Archer, and a Jacoby Ford. However, what I saw on tape from Thornton and Barnes 
give me promise that they can be legit pros at the next level. Let's start with Barnes. His coverage grade this past year wasn't great. It was a 66.9, but he flashed in more so of a slot nickel type role at corner, especially against Oklahoma, where he had his highest coverage grade of the season at 90.9. The things I saw from Barnes is the speed is real. Like he's the type of guy where he can just pop out of nowhere and make a play on the football. And I thought Dave Arnada did a pretty good job. Um, obviously a great defensive mind since his time in Wisconsin, time at LSU, did a great job of maximizing the speed and athleticism in that secondary, and they were just making plays all year long. It's the main reason why they were Big 12 champs and won the Sugar Bowl. Can a team get a Kalen Barnes and make him into, at best, one of the underrated nickel corners in the NFL? Um. I mean, I think it's possible. I still, you know, for me, looking at both of these guys, I still think Thornton's ceiling is a lot higher than Barnes is. Um, Barnes really struggled with injury, man. He missed a lot of games this year. He missed some going back to 2020. He's really struggled with staying healthy because of it, because he's a little bit undersized at the corner spot. And so I, I think slot corner is probably his best ability, maybe a nickel, you know, like a star or like a star role, like a nickel like one of those X positions. But for me, I, I think – I don't know if I – I don't think his speed's going to make him, like, invaluable like some people do. I mean, listen, you can run really fast, but what happens when you get routed up? Can you – can you, if, if you just come – if you come face-to-face with a, with a Justin Jefferson, a, a, even a Cooper Cup, who's not going to be – you're going to be way faster than Cooper Cup, but are you going to be able to withstand what he's going to bring in terms of fundamentals – to the game, and I think he struggled with that sometimes at Baylor. I think when he's matched up one-on-one coverage, you can route him up, and that's what I'm worried about. So I think he's a situational player at the next level. I don't think he's a star, but I do think he can find himself a role in pass downs and dime packages, things like that, or when a team has like a Tyreek Hill or just a absolute burner, you can use him as like an extra reinforcement. That way, you know, Tyreek's just not blowing by you know, corners and getting way behind the defense like he did Tampa, you know, in that regular season game where Carlton Davis got absolutely just embarrassed on the field. And I mean, he's getting backflipped into the end zone and things like that. So I think Kalen Barnes has a chance, but I do worry that it's more show than actual field production. I can't see him projecting as like a pro bowler or anything like that. I think he's a role player, situational guy in certain packages for an NFL team moving forward. Yeah, he's a role player, situational guy for me, too, I think, from a matchup standpoint. Uh, when you play a, a team full of fast, speed receivers, he's your guy. And then, like you say, injuries is important. Uh, I think that's really why his numbers fluctuated throughout his career at Baylor. He was never able to stay on the field. And so what probably will help him and probably will elevate his stock moving forward is being more of a nickel guy. And probably not the the nickel guy, but more of that fourth, fifth corner that could come in on obvious passing downs and give you a level of defensive flexibility until he's able to develop into that. But his speed obviously will get him through the door to get drafted. I, I think yeah. he's, he ran his way into getting selected. But like you said, Thornton, who we're going to get into in a minute, has a way higher upside because Thornton was able to stay on the field. Thornton was able to showcase his potential, and it translated very well. And that's what we're going to get to with Tyquan. He ran a 4-2-8. At 6'3". This is he's 6'3". That that's the caveat. I know a lot of people are like, well, John Ross ran a 422 and yada yada yada. John Ross, to be fair, was barely under 6'1. This is a 6'3 guy and a Tycoon Thornton. Um, he had the most targets on his team at 98, 
translated them into 62 catches for under 950 yards and 10 scores. He had the highest receiving grade on his team at 82.4. It was his highest receiving grade of his college career. And he was basically the feature passing weapon in a Baylor offense that ran the ball more, a balanced team. His TCU tape jumped out for me personally. It was probably his best tape out there. His West Virginia tape wasn't that bad. And it kind of debunked this whole myth with Tyquan that, oh, he's 428. All he'll do is just run verts. Um, his receiving grade was at his best in a medium depth, 97.8 grade with featured 22 catches with 272 yards and five scores. Medium depth is 10 to 19 yard route concepts where during a 10 yard route catches, it goes from there. So with Thornton blue, does he have a chance if he's able to put it all together at the next level to be a solid rotational receiver in the NFL? I mean, I think he has a chance to be a bona fide starter, really and truly. I mean, he had some absolutely great games. I mean, you mentioned the West Virginia game, eight catches from his 200 yards and, what, two touchdowns in that game for the year 10. And he ended the season with back-to-back, you know, touchdown games with over 70 yards this season. I mean, he he was a big target. And this is for a Baylor team again, like we mentioned with Christian Watson, that ran the ball a lot. They had – a lot of success with Tristan Ebner in that running back group where it was really with Jerry Bohan and also being hurt toward the end of the season, which limited Taekwon's production toward the end of the season. Uh, I believe Bohan went out in the Kansas State game late in the second half, got rolled up on and missed most of the, you know, the rest of the season. For him, I think the, the potential's there. You mentioned he can run his routes. He can be an intermediate guy. He can be a short route guy. And you know if he gets an open space, he can fly. And he, once those DBs start kind of looking in the backfield, he can get behind them and make some plays happen. I think Baylor utilized him real well with the play action. They knew they ran the ball well. And Jerry Bohannon had an absolute cannon. And they would play action to death. And Tyquan Thornton would go out and make a play. Now, I do think he has some work to do in terms of consistency with his route running there are games where it seems to be really on and then there's games like toward the end of the season where it really didn't seem to click and so consistency is my thing for 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 this guy and if he can get that consistency up I think he's a starter in the NFL I mean I you know it's kind of hard to make a comp for him because I mean no one at his size has been this explosive and this fast but I think he has an opportunity to kind of be a little bit better than like a DJ Chark where you you can expect him to make some plays be a starter but he's probably not going to be the the superstar of your team yeah DJ Chark Robbie Anderson where um, ceiling may be wide receiver two floor could be wide receiver three I mean he's that type of guy With Thornton, man, I think the thing that popped off to me is the route running is there. It's just about consistency. He's a guy that doesn't just rely on the speed to get open vertically. I mean, he does utilize that very well, but he can run it out. He can run in-breaking routes. He ran a lot of in-breaking routes. That's where he got a lot of his production, where the in-breaking route, he catches it, um, and he's able to break tackles and keep the the chains moving. His 6'3 high, I think, off-rip, especially for a team that may have some wide receiver um, depth issues will allow him to be a factor in the red zone. So if he just doesn't have the route concepts down, the two places you could use him is to take the top off a of defense and in the red zone because you can't teach 6-3 and he uses his body very well in his ability to be able to go up and catch it at the high point and come down and finish with flair. Now with him personally, like you said, consistency is important. Somebody at that speed, you always got to worry about the, the injuries because you run that fast, you do put a lot of stress and weight on your feet and you got to, and because of that, you have to wonder about his consistency in and out of breaks with the speed element. But like you said, with Baylor, 
like North Dakota State, they were not a pass first team. So if they were a pass first team, he could have went over a thousand yards and been a lot productive in the Big 12. But they utilize the run game to open up concepts down the field. And after a while, you play Baylor, you're in the conference in the Big 12, you know what Tycoon Thor represents, and he's still able to be productive. And that speed is incredible because he's able to utilize to his advantage to get in and out of his breaks. And there's immense separation at the top of his route where he's just wide open. And that's something you can't, you can't teach that speed, that acceleration, that burst, that height. He's got it. And I don't think he'll be John Ross. I don't think he'll be Jacoby Ford. I don't think he'll be Dree Archer because he's a lot bigger than them. And he's much more of a natural route runner than they were. And like I said, you can't teach height. If it doesn't work out early on, he can be a red zone threat at the next level. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you're looking at teams that potentially could work. I would really like to see them paired up with a team that already has a route tech or a wide receiver one on their roster. You're looking at the Saints with Michael Thomas coming back. You could pair him really well with a Michael Thomas. I think even Denver, you just got Russell Wilson. You have Cortland. You have Jerry Judy who are going to be your route guys. I would love to see him go there and be that wide, like you mentioned, a wide receiver three and be their burner on the back end. Or then you even look at someone potentially like the Rams that have already an OBJ who can route you up, who have Cooper Cup, who's not a burner, is going to route you up. And then you add the deep threat of a Taekwon Thornton. I think it could fit real well in there. And with some of these teams, they have later round picks you know, maybe not an early first or something like that, but to grab this guy in the second, third round would be a huge steal and a huge upgrade for some of those teams. Yeah, man, he has Gabriel Davis level upside where when Gabriel Davis came out of UCF wasn't a household name, but I liked him. I saw the potential that he had and he had that great playoff game uh, this year, actually against Kansas City to where it allowed Buffalo to open the door to the fact that Goodbye, Emmanuel. Goodbye, Cole Beasley. We got our wide receiver, too, opposite of Stephon Diggs. He could be that type of guy. It's all really going to come down to, in my opinion, an offense that has stability at quarterback and receiver and an offensive coach like a McVay that's able to open up his playbook and utilize what he brings to the table to the success of the offense day one. Because, like, that speed is crazy, and you can bring that to your offense, and it could be productive. Well, with that... I'm going to wrap up episode 46 with my man, Blue. It was great talking NFL combine recaps, the stalwarts, the disappointments and whatnot. Um, Before we go and leave it at this, Blue, just talk about how, what are you interested to see in the draft in terms of guys possibly getting selected here, trades, and when it's all said and done, who do you feel like can get the most bang of their buck from a certain player that may not be high on people's boards, but when they get him, he could probably translate into an asset for their team. Um, I mean, for me, I think the trades are always something you want to see. I mean, I think you're already seeing it now leading up to the draft. There are some big, there are some big moves. And then with Deshaun Watson being back in play today, what are we going to see? I mean, draft day could be just nuts if Deshaun Watson gets moved because we already know what the price tag on Deshaun Watson is going to be. I mean, it's going to be at least four first. I would imagine over the next few few seasons and probably even more and a probably replacement quarterback and such. But also, you know, with the NFL moving in the direction it is, I think every year you see a position kind of take the limelight where, you know, last year, QB and wide receiver, very, very deep. And everyone was just grabbing left and right. And a lot of people probably got taken earlier than they, they needed to be. And this year, I think you get that with offense and defensive linemen. I think it's super deep 
in this draft for offensive defensive linemen. And you're going to see a lot of guys that you're going to be shocked go in the first round. I mean, when you're looking at Tyler Lindenbaum, which is one of the most consistent and decorated offensive linemen in college football history, potentially not going to the late 20s, it shows you how deep this draft really is. You look at a Trevor Penning out of Northern Iowa, I think he has huge upside, and someone's going to get real lucky to get him, hopefully in the first round. I think he's a first-round talent. And then, you know, you look at all the FCS guys, you look at, you know, even some of the D2 guys we have coming out. I think there's a lot of bang for your buck at the FCS level. We've talked about Cole Kelly. We've talked about Troy Anderson, Christian Watson, Trevor Penning. But even when you look deeper, like a Marquise Bell is potentially there, a a Deshaun Dixon out of um, Nichols State. You look at some of these other guys. You mentioned Jacoby Durant as well coming out of South Carolina State. There's a lot of bang for your buck at the FCS level. So I think for me, when my draft day starts, you know, in terms of what we do for our show, it's going to be day two. Because I think there's a lot of guys in the second to, you know, third, fourth, fifth round that are going to be huge steals for a lot of teams. And I think some of these FCS guys are going to make a lot of money. And when you look at what Cooper Cup's already laid the groundwork to do, being the Super Bowl MVP out of Eastern Washington, uh, I, I'm very, very excited to see, you know, what what impact the FCS guys make. Because everyone knows about the FBS guys and what they bring to the table. But I think if if you know, a lot of draft experts don't pay attention to the FCS until now. And I think they've been missing a lot of potential superstars at the FCS level that can really turn in to stars at the NFL level. Yeah, man, I, I've been saying this the past few days. This is going to be one of the deeper drafts in recent memory. Now, it's not there at quarterback. I think that's why everybody might be a little down on the draft overall. But you can get a high-quality lineman. You can get a high-quality corner. You can get some very solid, productive running backs. And this is arguably one of the deeper receiving class where you might not have a Jamar Chase, but you can have four to five Justin Jeffersons, T. Higgins, um, Tyler Boyd's, those type of guys that can come in and be factors. And like you said, you know, the draft is really going to start in day two because I think that's where a lot of value will come in. I think that's where a lot of fans of different organizations will learn about these FCS guys and will learn to appreciate them in the next two to three years because of what they're delivering at the NFL level. So that's going to be phenomenal to see, but this is going to be one of the more deeper drafts where when it's all said and done, I think every team in the league is probably going to have at least a guy that they're like, man, we're glad we got him. It may have not worked out everywhere else, but we're glad we got him as a cornerstone or as a foundational piece, and we can go from there. Yes, Super Super Bowls are one in day two and day three of the NFL draft. Uh, outside of quarterback, quarterbacks one in day one, but every other position, if you look at the Rams – all most of the you win Super Bowls in the later rounds of the draft. You look at a Cooper Cup, you look at some of the rotational guys outside of OBJ and and Matt Stafford and Aaron Donald. Everybody, nobody else was really a first round pick. And Jalen Ramsey, of course, I forgot about him. But everyone, everyone else was a late round pick. You got to fill your roster out, and Super Bowls are won in day two and day three. They are. So I get the narrative. It's ironic. We're talking about the Rams, the kings of. F them picks, but those picks matter, especially later in the rounds, because they can make or break your trajectory as a franchise. And like you said about the Tennessee Titans, for them in 2020 to have none of their guys on the roster, that's a failed draft. And as a Saints fan, I've been there. We've had failed drafts too. And so you always want to hit on a draft where it's like, man, most of our guys panned out because they help keep you in playoff contention. 
Um, yeah, that, that Caesar that uh, Caesar uh, Ruiz pick kind of still still sticking st- sticking in your feelings. <laughs> Before we leave, <laughs> I gotta talk to you about Ruiz, man, because you're you're the college football guy. Yo, like when Ruiz happened, okay, I get I get it. He was a center guard. He could play both ways. When it happened, I was like, we don't need a center. We got dude from A and M. We're good. The guard, they were like, he's not really a guard. He's more of a center. So I'm going to have this guy play out of position where he's not comfortable. And that was a draft where I forgot. Was that the – that was a Jordan Love draft, possibly. Where I was like, yo, we could have got Jordan Love, and that could have really resolved a lot of quarterback situations, issues that we had after Drew Brees. Um, Were you high on Ruiz when that happened live? Or were you kind of skeptical and you're not surprised about how it's turned out now? Um, I mean, I think he, I think when you look at centers, like if he would played in position, maybe it would have been a, a solid pick, but moving him to guard probably wasn't the best option. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of center prospects, he was probably one of the best coming out of the draft. I mean, in terms of college production and, and, and everything, but I still think the Saints probably still reached a little bit on him. I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't know. I, you know, looking back, you know, now it's easy to say it was a reach, but for me, I, I just, unless it's a generational talent, on the interior of the office, like unless you're getting a Quentin Nelson, I don't think you should draft a center or guard as that early. The the first few rounds tackles. That's that's where you got to go. That's where the money's made. But interior linemen, man, you can get so much value for fifth, sixth round that I think they kind of reached on them. And on top of that, there's been so many weird picks, like to trade up and get the kid out of Houston that y'all drafted, um, you know, a while back. Like what? What a, what would I, I I just you know you could have got him in probably the second or third round and traded up like way into the first to grab him. So I mean for me, I, I, the Saints have a lot of question marks, man. You know my my old co-host is the Saints fan, and he texted me and he was like, "Yeah, man, Caesar Caesar is is like you can't say that name in my house um, when you're talking to him about Saints football." But there's been a lot of questionable draft moves, man. And I don't feel like the Saints have nailed a lot of their draft picks in recent memory, which is why. They keep having to go into like cap hell to try to save themselves, and now they're like negative like five hundred million in the cap. It feels like 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 it feels like you you just gotta like burn it down and like have hope hope to build it back up because there's so many cap problems that you know the Saints have to nail draft picks this year. That this is the year where if you're the Saints and you whiff on your first, second, third round pick, whatever, it's gonna it's gonna cost you dearly in terms of what that franchise can be. That's and that's factual. And, you know, New Orleans has found a creative way the last two years to get under the cap. But Mm -hmm. honestly, we all know that's not going to be sustainable moving forward. You're going to have to let guys go, which means a draft like this one, you have to hit home. And, you know, their draft, you know, history recently in the last five years has been so up and down. Had an incredible 2017 draft where everybody turned out to be solid contributors. But then after that, Traquan Smith was a reach. Um, Cesar Ruiz, we just talked about, they traded up to take Marcus Davenport over Lamar Jackson and Jair Alexander. And while I do agree Davenport when healthy is a monster, he can't stay healthy and he's very refined and raw. Jair Alexander would have made a lot more sense because now that it allows you last year's draft, you don't have to really hope that Paulson Adipo pans out in the third round. And he kind of did. He's raw. Now you have a lot of more Alexander. You can maximize what you take in the third, which could probably go to a skill position or a D-line or a value pick somewhere. So for New Orleans, it's been such a mystery. And, you know, we got a new regime now. And I think a lot of it had to do with Sean Payton really being the main man and just really articulating what he wanted for his roster. Now there's a new 
perspective and a new vision. And maybe that allows these scouts to kind of maximize what they value for the betterment of the team more so than what Coach Payton wants. And they got to hit it home. And it really starts with the first two rounds, all right? Like, are you going to get the quarterback? Are you going to get the receiver? I think that's what everybody thinks they're going to go. Or are you going to go back to the line? Because that's what the Saints like to do. They like to pick linemen in the first round. It's weird. (laughs) But this is a draft where you can do it if a – and I don't expect the Charles Cross to fall all the way to us. But if he happens to, I don't have a problem with you doing that. But you got to go skill position. You got to hit hard in the first two rounds because eventually you no longer can just ask guys to restructure deals to go under the cap. You're going to have to let guys go. And the only way you can be comfortable in doing it is you got his replacement to come and usurp them. That's what Buffalo is doing by letting Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley buck because they know um, McKenzie and Gabriel Davis are up next. They can get stuff done. So that's what they're going to have to do. And and the problem with the Saints is there's just so many holes. Like, do you need the quarterback? How about some wide receiver depth? Because we never know what Michael Thomas is going to do or be or if he's going to be hurt. Then O-line still got some holes because your picks didn't pan out. You know, previously, D-line still got some question marks around there. And Cam Jordan's like 900 years old now. So eventually you're going to have to replace him. And, you know, Davenport's doing his thing when he's healthy, like you said. Linebacker, ancient at that position. You got to figure out what your succession plan is for Davis at, at the linebacker spot and moving forward. Secondary, outside of Lattimore, really and truly, you've got some old guys back there that are going to have to be replaced eventually. So it's like, where, like you could benefit by getting a Jordan Davis at defensive tackle, a Trayvon Walker at edge to replace, you know, um, you know Jordan when he eventually leaves. You can. You can take a Trevor Penning at offensive tackle and be be happy with that. There's really, you know, either even Tyler Lindenbaum, I think, would be solid, you know, for your interior. And then a wide receiver, do you do you take a chance on a Jamison Williams if he falls? Do you grab a Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson or even a Christian Watson later in the draft? But for me, looking at the Saints roster, with how generational I think the D-line draft could be. I think if Trevon Walker or Jordan Davis is there, they got to go with them. I know it might not be the flashy pick, but with their combine performances and what that film speaks, that, that's got to be the pick. Because I think you can get value because I think by the time the Saints pick in round two, Christian Watson still might be there. And so if you can combine a Jordan Davis and then get a Christian Watson second round, I'm giving the Saints an A-plus for that draft. Or, or even a Mechie in the second round, potentially. And then there's going to be some offensive linemen in the third, fourth, fifth round that I think can fill out your roster nicely. But, and then, you know, because when I look at the QB class, man, I don't think anybody is immediate upgrade over Jameis. I I just don't. I I don't. I think if you're wanting a quarterback, fill out your skill positions this year. Next year, you got probably two or three, maybe even four guys that can be generational talents coming out of the quarterback spot. Wait for that. Because Spencer Radler could have a reawakening in South Carolina. You have Bryce Young. You have C.J. Stroud. And then who knows who that Justin Herbert slash Kenny Pickett type guy is going to be that just has his breakout season. It could be Bo Nix at Oregon. It it could be, you know, Jaden Daniels at LSU that just transferred down there or, you know, who knows. But for me, I think I think the QB class this year is too hit or miss to take a chance to replace Jameis Winston, who is probably going to throw you three to four, maybe five thousand yards in in a dome with the team you have. I just don't see an immediate upgrade there for the Saints. Off actual indeed. I, I thought coming into the draft, I was like, yo, we need everything needs to be offense, but 
Jordan Davis for sure could be a value pick at that spot. And I take him because he's basically like Vince Wilfork with athleticism. And you put him on your defensive line, changes everything and opens it up for Cam Jordan and Marcus Davenport. Like Daniel Anyamata is an underrated guy in, in the inside already. Anyamata and Jordan Davis together just opens it up for that fearsome front seven for the New Orleans. And then if you get Watson, Watson in the second round, it just opens up the upside you have offensively. So, like I said, deep draft that the Saints need to take advantage of. I don't want to come away from this draft being like, why did we reach for this, this, and this? You, they're gonna they're gonna trade up for like just just some random player we never heard of. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna trade up. Listen, they're gonna draft just some random player. It's gonna be like a D two player. You're gonna be like, well, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> facts, facts indeed, facts indeed. But um, that's it for episode forty six. Great to always have my guy Blue on. Um, this episode will drop tomorrow, so stay tuned. There, it'll drop on Saturday. But um, always great to talk football. My guy Blue, gonna have you on probably next time after the draft, and we could probably recap where guys went and where that went and all that good jazz. But um, this is a great listen. Yo, guys, tune in. I'll be back next week. Peace.